So testing first. You hear me in the back? Okay. Some years ago, I was taking some time for personal practice in Burma, and I went to give my report to the teacher, Sedao Pandita. I entered the interview room to give my report and walked in slowly and mindfully because that was one of the ways that he actually kind of deciphered how much mindfulness you were um, putting into your practice, just the way you walked in. So I took my seat, uh, my place on a cushion, and did my three bows. And while I was bowing, he said, he asked this question, what is equanimity? What is equanimity? And I gave the answer in short, that it's a balanced, spacious, calm state of mind that has an absence of reactivity, of aversion and attachment. And so you had to be ready for any question he might ask you when you come in. And so uh, he gave his usual sign of approval, which was simply, mm. you know, that, that was pretty good. Uh, he gave that. So he gave his answer. He said that equanimity is like a chariot being pulled by five horses. In the lead is mindful awareness, and behind that are the first pair of horses, faith and wisdom, and behind that is the second pair of horses, concentration and energy. And he said, when faith and wisdom are in balance and concentration and energy are all in balance, the lead horse, mindfulness, has little work. Has little work. Then, he said, the chariot is led effortlessly, smoothly and powerfully towards liberation, the liberating and the freeing of the heart of greed, hatred, and delusion. So this talk tonight is not about equanimity. It's what this kind of um, balance produces uh, in terms of these five cardinal virtues or the five spiritual or balancing faculties that I would like to speak about tonight. And I'll fill some of them in more than others this evening. So the first one uh, I mentioned already is mindfulness itself. And then there's faith and wisdom as a pair. And then it's concentration and energy as a pair. So I would like to fill these out for you as much as I can, because whenever I've heard this talk, which has been given many times uh, in my presence, it always helps me to understand how to balance my own practice and where are the places that I'm exerting too much energy, effort, and where are the places that are lacking. So all of these are active powers, and in and of themselves, they become stronger as practice gains momentum. And as they become stronger in their moment-to-moment continuity of awareness, 
we can watch and kind of modulate so that they stay in balance with one another. And this is really important in our practice, this balance of our practice. So I'll talk a little bit about how each one has their own specific function, how it performs and how it harmonizes with the other faculties to produce uh, a deeper calm and a way of uh, energy that kind of carries us forward without effort. What they do with each other is they establish the balance needed for that deeper understanding, that clearer comprehension, so that it can lead to this liberating knowledge, liberating understanding. It's interesting how one of them helps um, all of the others, really. When one of them is present, it brings all of the others kind of up to par with its kind of level of uh, power. It's said that they coordinate or corral the potential of all the faculties inherent in our mind stream already. So it brings us to that kind of, that ultimate uh, aspiration that we have of being, our hearts and minds being more and more purified of those places that cause us suffering, greed, hatred, and delusion. The Buddha points out that neither he nor anyone else can bestow these upon us. They are inherent qualities already within us. We just have to activate them by the continuity and the energy that we put into our practice here and in our daily lives. They can be fully developed and nourished in in that way. So we're nurturing their growth here. We're understanding how they work, how to keep them kind of in balance with one another, how they transform from faculties to what we call the five spiritual powers. So I'd like to read to you the words of one of our um, great bhikkhus today, um, an American Theravadan Buddhist monk, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. He edited a lot of the major works of the translation of the suttas, and um, he has his own commentaries as well about the Dhamma. So we, a lot of us read him a lot um, and learn a lot from him. So here he says, Left to itself, without the guidance of a superior source of instruction, the mind is prey to forces that swell up from within itself. Forces which hold us in subjection and prevent us from attaining our own highest welfare and genuine good. These forces are called the defilements, the hindrances, or as Joseph pointed out, kilesas. As long as we live and act under their dominion, we're not our own masters, but passive pawns, driven by our blind desires into courses of conduct that promise fulfillment, but in the end lead only to misery and bondage. True freedom necessarily involves the attainment of inner autonomy, the strength to withstand the pushes and pulls of our appetites, and this is accomplished precisely by the development of these five spiritual faculties. So this is one of the very common um, talks 
given by the Buddha and many teachers to help us understand how are we doing in our practice, to help us take a look at our own practice by kind of comparing ourselves to how uh, this balance might be by hearing about it. So let's look at one factor at a time and how one is naturally the cause for the others to arise, one by one. So starting with faith. Faith um, pretty much just in three areas are the teachings, our teachers, those we choose to listen to the Dhamma from, to take guidance from, and more importantly, most importantly, faith in ourselves. Faith brings forth the confidence actually to start the next uh, faculty to be uh, empowered, and that is energy, the energy or the effort to actually do our practice. It's not, and I'll fill this out a little bit more, it's not that kind of oomph, that push of energy, but it's a more relaxed, sustainable energy. So energy into our path of practice, where we have some degree of confidence that we can sustain that. So what I see in myself sometimes is I might be pushing too much and I realize just all of a sudden this is not sustainable, you know, this kind of way that I'm doing my practice. So then I kind of settle back more into a more relaxed, just plodding along, step by step, breath by breath, experience by experience, moment by moment. So this kind of effort leads us in the right direction, in the direction of inner freedom. So this continuity of a relaxed, sustainable energy of mindful awareness on changing experiences, this is in Vipassana practice, where we put the attention on changing objects or changing experiences, It brings about a stronger stability of mind. As it gathers momentum in a gentle, persevering way. So this is a kind of concentration necessary in Vipassana practice, which we are doing here. So this is a stability of mind. It's it's more experienced in that way, not like a just kind of um, limited concentration on just a one object or one experience, but it's a wide-angled, moment-to-moment, putting energy into various objects that arise and pass away momentarily. And so this continuity of that one by one by one by one creates that stability of mind, that sense that we can feel a sense of safety and ease in that one by one by one changing conditions and noticing those changing conditions. So that kind of moment-to-moment concentration steadies and unifies the mind's energy. And even in that, you know, when all the energy is going on changing objects uh, momentarily, just one by one by one, it um, causes the energy to to create a force field around one's experience so that a limited amount or uh, no um, 
hindrances come into that force field. So we feel kind of a sense of seclusion in there. It may not be complete. It may not be a feeling of complete seclusion. But it's enough to help us feel that we can continue on without being bombarded by a lot of, uh, of the hindrances. So this is a kind of concentration necessary that steadying and unification of the mind's energy. When that happens, that energy becomes so um, powerful that it's like a magnifying glass because it's not dispersed all over the place and it's not being bombarded and pummeled by a lot of the hindrances. So it's able to take that magnifying glass energy and really see through the illusion of permanence and see through the illusion of solidity. So it begins to see through the old concepts that we've held for a long time of permanence and uh, things being so solid, even the sense of self being solid. So that each moment is seen very profoundly and clearly, much more than before when we have this unification of mind and everything directed onto changing objects one by one by one. So piercing through the illusion of solidity and permanence and the misunderstood view of an eternalized, solid sense of self. So when this deepening and powerful new kind of right view or wise view happens, it supports the experiential understanding and acceptance of the Four Noble Truths. It comes to be known not by knowledge, not by heady knowledge, book knowledge, or just taking somebody else's word for it, but it comes to be known without resistance, without avoidance, but by seeing clearly the first truth of these Noble Truths, that there is the truth of suffering. And we really can open to it. The mind-heart can really open to it because there's no resistance. When there is this kind of concentration, it opens to this kind of wisdom. There is a cause which can be relinquished. There's a truth which can be open to. That's the first one. There's a cause that can be let go of, relinquished. The cause being craving, clinging. There's an end that can be realized because in the practice there is actually seen and experienced the end of moments of that suffering. And so we come to understand it experientially. And then there is a path leading to the end of suffering. That's the fourth noble truth. This is the Eightfold Noble Path, which a lot of, um, I hear a lot of people saying nowadays, It's advanced, really advanced common sense, this Eightfold Noble Path. So this, of course, is part of the deepening of wisdom. Faith leads to energy, to do what needs to be done, kindles a sustainable mindful awareness on changing experience, which creates a stability or uh, the right kind of concentration for Vipassana practice. And it begins to see life in a very profound way. It begins to open to the wisdom factor, 
which is what liberates the mind and the heart. So, of course, all of this leads to greater faith. When we open to more wisdom and we have those wonderful insights and aha moments, it helps us to understand this mind and body continuum can do it. It can understand deeply. And it sees those, experiences those moments of freedom, which keeps us going. So the cycle continues to become more and more powerful and more in balance. And so that's how the balance helps to really deepen the practice. Faith and wisdom are in balance with one another. Energy and concentration are in balance with one another. So it makes the lead, the mindfulness, awareness work effortlessly. And there is something that happens in practice called effortless mindfulness. When some of you, I know, have experienced it already in your practice, where just keep going to what's sustainable and the balance happens and can't help but for mindfulness to arise at every mind door. So now I'd like to fill out some of them, each of them, a little more fully, some more than others. So first is faith. Um, When I last practiced with uh, Utejaniya, one of my teachers in the in the last ten years or so, and I um, had an interview with him, and I remarked to him that it seems like right now in my practice, faith is is the strongest of all of these qualities, these different qualities, and it kind of has to be because at a certain point of practice or a certain point of one's life. Um, you know, we reach these places where it's a really steep learning curve, you know, that we have to kind of really maybe jump through hoops of fire or it seems like, um, you know, the the lessons that are coming to us in life are, are harder than usual. And a lot of it's because we become more sensitive to life and we don't want to do harm. So we really are careful with our karma, with what we're putting out there. So I am what is known in the Dhamma as a faith type, and the other side of that, how I'm known in the Dhamma, is a greedy type. (laughs) You know, there are three kind of personality types, the greed type, the aversive type, and the deluded type. And I did ask Manindra one time, and he said, oh, you're balanced. You have them all. (laughs) But mostly I can really see that my mind tends towards what's pleasant. And um, so <clears throat> that's difficult sometimes. But also I see the faith is there. You know, greed reaches out and seeks towards what is unwholesome, what doesn't lead to something beneficial in one's life. Because, of course, if you keep acting out greed, then you feed it. Uh, But faith is what seeks out the Dhamma. Faith is what seeks out the truth of how things are. Faith seeks out being with uh, Dhamma friends, teachers who give us good advice. Faith is what seeks out hearing the Dhamma, practicing the Dhamma. And so all of you have that because you're here. You have that kind of faith. 
And questions always get asked, well, isn't that bad to want that? And that's a different thing, that seeking out what is wholesome is not cra- craving or clinging. It, it has actually a whole different word in the Pali language. Uh, that doesn't, that's not important now, what that word is, but it's just that when we seek out the good, we can see that as faith. And actually, a lot of wisdom comes with that, too. So when I told uh, Utejaniya about this, he said he had never put it in words before, but he saw that faith was something that when you have that in the very beginning, it kind of up-levels all the other things. In fact, when you have any one of those qualities, it up-levels all the rest of those qualities in your practice. But it's also important to keep them in some kind of balance. So I know it's kind of hard to listen to all these theoretical words and how one thing makes another happen, so I like to tell a lot of stories. One of my stories of faith is um, this, sometimes you can think it's stupid faith, but in the Dhamma it's always turned out pretty good for me. So there was this one time when... um, this piece of land that now um, you know exists in in Hawaii, where I live, it was being rented, and so um, there was a an idea to rent it for a longer period of time to have a long lease on it. So I went to the owner, who was actually had some connection with the Dhamma, and I said, you know, I'd like to lease this for a longer period of time. He said, it's not possible because I'm going to sell it because I I'm, I'm won't be living much longer and I want to give the proceeds to my family. So right away, just out of the clear blue sky, I said, okay, we'll buy it. I, I didn't have any money, you know. <laughs> we didn't have any anything, but I just said, oh, we'll buy it. And so um, I, I said, how much? And he said, 850000 I said, okay, that's good. <laughs> this is a really true story. And then, um, so I went home, and, you know, I talked to the people involved, and they said, wow, but uh, okay, you know, let's do it. And because it was, it seemed like it could happen. So one of the, you know, sent out, handwritten letters and people responded and then there was this one person who called and said you know you never asked me and I thought oh you know I I didn't because she didn't I was giving her things you know I was giving her my my clothes and things like that and I I didn't think she might be a donor but she but I said oh I'll uh, of course I'll send you a, a letter and so she called me and she said, um, you know, I, I've decided I'm going to send you, uh, you know, $20,000. And I said, oh my God, you know, I had to sit down. <laughs> and then she said, and then I'm giving up some, um, some stocks and it's going to be uh, this amount. And it was a huge amount. So we were basically, along with other donors, able to 
by that piece of land. And so uh, this is my story of faith. (laughs) But you know, it's because it's for the Dhamma. And it it wasn't for me personally. It was for generations to come. and, um, And I really believe in that. So faith is, it inspires us to keep going, you know, to keep doing what we can for, for people around us, for the Dhamma, for ourselves. And it really give, gives us that energy, that good karma energy to keep going. So it's an inspiration and it plants the seeds of confidence that makes it possible to keep going on our path. It steers the mind away from doubt a lot. When you have a lot of faith, just even in little things, you know, in the faith to just take the next step or just get through the rest of the sitting. Sometimes, and most of the time, that's all the faith you need. You know, I used to, when I did walking practice in the very beginning, I used to say, start here on this particular track and say, Okay, perfect mindfulness from here to the end. Of course, it would never happen. You know, it, would, it was always like faltering all the time, forgetting, thinking, and not even knowing I'm thinking. So I decided to just take a little bit at a time, and it really worked that way. You know, I'd see a little pebble on the path or a leaf, and I would say, just till there. And it might be like two and a half steps. That's as much faith as I needed in that moment. And then it would be a little bit longer than that, you know, or a little bit more, and just just right. And then it got to be where, you know, it, it was okay to miss moments of mindfulness. And so I, I had just a lot more faith in myself to keep going on the path. So when faith is stronger... Anything can happen, you know, some, some huge thing, some memory of something of our past, or perhaps a worry about the future can come. And the mind can come up with, this can be dealt with, because we have, we've done it before in one way or another, and we know we can do it again if we take bits at a time. So I always... Um, Remember, it's something that I heard from Joseph, actually. The first step depends on the last. You know, so knowing what your aspiration is. And it may be, you know, just to be a better human being. I mean, not just. That's a huge thing, to be a better human being. Or it may be to be totally liberated in this life. Whatever it is, you know, you, you're able to see what, that last step might be what that final place might be, that direction you're headed into and say, okay, I can go for that. And the last step depends on the first. So it's really helpful for me to know that every step is the first step. It's not like, you know, I'm counting. That every step is the beginning of the journey. So faith is built up by a lot of that kind of discipline, you know, that we have. It's just a discipline to keep going in our lives, in in our practice, where we're not paralyzed by doubt. But if we are, 
we have enough wherewithal to know, oh, this is doubt. This is just doubt. So it can withstand a lot of difficulties and what it takes is, uh, it really takes more of a heart thing than a head thing. You know, we can't figure our way. Usually when we have doubt, we're trying to figure our way through things. But it really takes a lot of heart. And the heart part of it is devotion. So a lot of times for me, it's like asking myself, how much devotion do I really have to my, my highest aspiration? Am I, am I living that devotion out? Or am I just willy-nilly doing my life? You know, just kind of answering the call of whatever. I mean, that's a big part of my life too, answering the call and, um, you know, fulfilling responsibilities and things like that. But devotion is a real heart-based experience of faith. To have devotion to your your value. What's your highest value in your life? you know, for you to open to, uh, to fulfill in your life? It's a good question. It has a greater chance to be developed, you know, that highest value when we have this heart quality of devotion. So for me, it's connected to the love of the Dhamma. You know, when, um, when things are difficult, you know, to... to understand that I have the protection of the Dhamma is really something that holds me through difficult times. And why do I have the protection of the Dhamma? Because I do the best I can to not harm. You know, to start with the basics. To do the basic precepts of non-harming. And to be as mindful as I can be. Though it's not always perfect. And through time, you know, that becomes... Um, more and more okay, that it's not perfect. We're less bothered by by the fact that we're off in la-la land for a while. And we're more and more mindful, too. So when we have devotion to our path, it gives us a gift of the lessening of pride. You know, we have humility, where we can, we, we don't have to pummel ourselves so much with, um, criticism that we can't do it right. You know, we can be humbled by that we can't do it right sometimes. And it can be okay to feel that, to be that way. So out of love for the Dhamma, we have respect for our practice. We, we sit up in a place of dignity. We take our seat with nobility. And we know this is what I value And this is where I'm going to put a sustainable energy in my life. So it's our, through our devotion, our love, our humility, we can verify, you know, the first noble truth over and over again. It takes humility to do that. To say, this is, this is hard. This is, this is suffering. The first noble truth is there is the truth of suffering. And we can, we can say that over and over again and open to it. And also open to see the causes of them. So faith is so important to me. And since I'm a faith type, I'm 
having a little more on faith here in the talk tonight. So on this path of practice, we can experience faith in three basic areas. So it's good to check it out for ourselves. The first area is uh, faith in the teachings. Now, some, uh, sometimes when we hear the teachings, they can be a little confusing because we don't have all the dots to connect yet. But if we can wait sometimes and say, at, at some point I'll understand that. I remember one time that I, was, uh, I heard the, the teachings on the five aggregates so many times, and I still couldn't understand the, you know, what not-self was all about, which is what that's pointing to. And so one time I was hearing this teaching from um, somebody who was um, uh, learning to be a teacher. And this person gave the talk. And it was just the right time. You know, you know, it was just that tipping point. When I had done enough practice and I, had, uh, heard, I heard it again and I put all those pieces together and for the first time I realized under, experientially, understandably, but there were, there were ever-deepening moments after that, I realized I really understand now what not-self means. And it was, it was just by hearing it over and over and over again. That's why the Buddha repeated over and over and over again. So somebody told me today, the Buddha repeated, so you can repeat. <laughs> Some of the, my family members say I repeat. So now I'm going to say, well, I'm like the Buddha. <laughs> so... So the second area we can experience faith in is our teachers. So we, we need to choose our teachers um, wisely, you know. And some teachers may not seem like our teachers, but like Manindra used to say, you can learn from every side. You know, he used to take everything as a teaching. And so you can learn from people. Sometimes he would say, a perfect rose can come from an imperfect giver. Even those who we think, you know, well, who are they to blah, 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 you know, when we look at their sila or their, their, how they're living in harmony. But sometimes what they put out is a really beautiful teaching. And so that's what happened to me one time when it was during the 70s when I was hearing these teachings that really struck me and opened my my wisdom eye a little more. And when I said, yeah, but when I look at this person, Sila, you know, how we, this person keeps the precepts, I'm not so sure. And that's when Menindra said, a perfect rose can come from an imperfect giver. So, you know, teachings can come from all over the place. The teachings of the Dharma come from nature a lot. Wordless, but deep so the third area, and most important, is faith in ourselves, in our own potential to know for ourselves. So our first, our potential to know ourselves and to let everything that is to be known be revealed and bring different levels and um, different kind of powers of mindfulness to it, depending on how much we can take. 
Sometimes we have to modulate how much we can take of what we're opening to. And then to be able to kind of titrate how much we take in if it's too much, just take a little at a time. But sometimes we can really open to something that we couldn't open to before, that might have been horrible five years ago. But now we can. Can open to places in ourselves that are really hard to bear. Experiences of the past, fears of the future. Um, So most important is faith in ourselves. So that's why we need to know how to balance our practice so that we can know how to develop that faith in ourselves so we can take one step at a time, know how to do it for ourselves. So in the Dhamma, we often hear these words in Pali, that ancient language that the Buddha's teachings were first uh, were translated in. And those words are ehi pasiko, ehi pasiko. Manindra, uh, our teacher, used to say that quite a bit. Come and see for yourself. He wouldn't care if, you know, somebody came to hear the Dhamma and then that person would say, oh, I want to go to the Himalayas and spend five years there uh, going around circumnavigating a mountain or something. He would say, just go. See for yourself how it is. He wouldn't try to, he wasn't proselytizing or holding anybody there. And I love that about him so much. But he would also say, come and see for yourself. And if you were depending on him, or he gave a lot, but when he knew that I was kind of depending on him, or even Seda Upandita, uh, they, you know, there would be, like with Seda Upandita, they carry, you know, the Burmese carry these fans, the Burmese teachers, and I would think that fan is to like, you stay there, I stay here. You know, do it yourself. (laughs) So Manindra would say, teachers um, or experienced friends can only point the way. You're the one who has to walk the way. I can't do it for you. I've heard that so many times from him. You know, as if I would just hear the Dhamma from him and vicariously just kind of float on the Dhamma for the rest of my life. But no, you know, had to do it yourself. So sometimes we don't know what to do or who to believe or so much is available now that we can't keep up with whose advice to take and what to do. So this wonderful story about... um, when a group of people came to the Buddha and they were called the Kalamas, they were confused by so many spiritual teachers coming through that they didn't know who to follow and they were uncertain. They had a lot of doubts. So they asked the Buddha what to do. They said, Venerable Sir, there is doubt, there is uncertainty in us concerning all these teachers. Which one of these reverend monks speak the truth, and which are falsehood. And the Buddha replied this way. He said, It is proper for you to doubt, to be uncertain. Do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated learning, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor, nor upon what is in a scripture, nor upon surmise, nor upon reasoning, nor upon a bias towards a notion that has been pondered over nor upon another's seeming ability 
nor upon the consideration, this person is our teacher. Kalamas, when you yourselves know there are things that are unwholesome, blamable, that lead to harm and ill will, then abandon them. When you for yourselves know these things are wholesome, these things are not blamable, these are praised by the wise, undertaken and observed by the wise, these things lead to benefit and happiness, then enter on and abide in them. So this is faith. And this is how you should understand faith for yourselves. Does it lead to wholesome states of mind? Does it lead to unwholesome states of mind? And what to do with that? So those are the three different kinds of areas you might have faith in, in teachings and the teachers in oneself, and three different kinds of faith. There's blind faith and bright faith and verified faith. So blind faith is when you're not yet trusting your own experience. Why? Because you don't really know it. And you come to trust it through mindful awareness, becoming familiar with what's going on in this body-mind continuum. That's how you come to trust your, your own experience, coming to trust yourself. When you've explored your inner terrain in, in various ways and in deep ways, So we have blind faith when we tend to misplace ourselves, our trust in others. And that's when we uh, are content to hear someone else's experience and just agree and say, oh, that's really wonderful. And it's all about that teacher. It's all about, I'm I'm pretty um, suspicious sometimes, you know, when it's all about the teacher. And I, I really want to understand from the teacher, how can it be for this heart? For this mind. So when we're not living vicariously um, through others' experience, that's when the faith is, is starting to grow, when we don't have blind faith. When we start to have bright faith is when a person, a place, a reading, or um, maybe a retreat, or hearing something begins to light the flame of possibility for ourselves. And our own inner light is happening. And it's not just somebody else's. And the degree of dependence on their brightness, it it doesn't matter. We're not dependent upon them. And my bright faith came a lot when I heard about Deepama, one of the students of Manindraji, who Manindraji said with a lot of humility that she even surpassed him in her sort of attainment in the Dhamma. And she was a, a, a also um, a relative of Manindraji, and Manindraji was her teacher, and heard many stories about her, how um, she went through different levels of enlightenment. So she became a, a bright faith figure for me in my practice. And then there's verified faith when our own trials and tribulations, our own experiential wisdom starts to grow, and we know the way for ourselves. And nothing inwardly or outwardly can stop us from believing in ourselves, believing in the Dhamma, 
believing in the teachers who offer the, the Dhamma. So it becomes unshakable. Our faith becomes unshakable. So that's faith, and that's what I wanted to cover the most this evening. So a little bit about energy, the second factor of these uh, factors of, of um, five spiritual factors. Energy or effort, I've just said a few things about it already. See if it's sustainable. What, what, whatever you're doing, you know, is this sustainable? Usually there's a, a lot said in the West about how much we strive and, um, you know, kind of over-effort. So that's where we really have to watch ourselves. You know, uh, Upandita comes from a place, uh, comes from Burma, and usually, according to what I hear from there, what they see in Burma is there's the opposite. You know, there's not as much striving. So Upandita came to the West, and he, he would talk about a lot of effort and energy, maybe not knowing so much how much we automatically strive. So I really had to modulate that for myself when I was for myself when I was practicing with him all the time. Just take my own time and, and watch how, how I was doing it. So it's more, I want to emphasize here more the continuity of awareness than this kind of oomphing energy. It's that gentle, persevering energy that we need in our practice. A lot of um, energy uh, in, in this regard is the energy of patience. Just being patient with our practice, with ourselves, what comes up. So keep that, keep those in mind, patience, gentle, persevering energy, keeping the thread of mindfulness electrified throughout the day. So one time I was faltering, giving up, and it happened because of too much pushing And I heard this sutta, and it really helped me to find my own balance. And this is uh, something that was asked of the Buddha. Someone came to the Buddha and said, How, dear sir, did you cross the flood, the flood of samsara, the flood of suffering? And he said, By not haltering, friend, by not straining, I cross the flood. But how is it, dear sir, that by not halting and not straining, you cross the flood. He meant continuity here. When I came to a standstill friend, I then sank. But when I struggled, I got swept away. It is in this way, friend, that by not halting, by not straining, I cross the flood. So this is the continuity. You know, see if you can just keep continuous throughout the day. One of our teachers, Utejania, said very astutely, this is not a hundred-yard dash. This is more like a marathon. You know, our whole lives, this continuity. So that's faith and then energy, two of the spiritual faculties, both wholesome qualities of mind. Now uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about Sati, which in Pali means mindfulness. And uh, Annie very beautifully filled that out the other evening. So 
I'm just going to remind you about a few things there. And this is what we're doing this, this whole nine days here together. And so you'll be hearing a lot of this anyway about mindfulness. So sati means remembering. I mean, that's kind of like the basic thing about sati. Remembering what? It's remembering to be mindful. It's not remembering the past. It's not remembering like what the future will bring. It's remembering this present moment experience to really be ardent about that. This also from the Buddha to give us some kind of that um, direct transmission. I like to, we all like to read his words more. Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes for the past has been left behind and the future has not yet been reached. Instead with insight let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. Death, he means death. But one who dwells ardently, relentlessly, day by day, night by night, is one who has had a single excellent day. So may this be our single excellent day and every day forward too. So this mindfulness is being in the present moment. And we don't have to figure the present moment out. We can just know it, that's all. It, I mean, sometimes we think we've got to figure this out somehow. You know what we can know in that moment? Figuring out. That's all that's happening. You know, we don't have to know anything else more about it. We just kind of get knots and tangles trying to figure it out. That was so relieving to me to just, you know, report to the teacher this. And he said, do you notice that you're figuring it out? Uh, I say, oh yeah, I'm figuring. He said, are you mindful of that? And I was not mindful of that. So just by noticing, figuring out, just a whole lot of useless energy went down the drain. You know, figuring it out, that's all. So when mindfulness is there, it reflects the truth of experience. It's like a clean, clear mirror that just reflects the truth. And it can be really simple. Keep the truth really simple. The truth of, uh, that's being reflected by this sati. So another way of um, talking about mindfulness, another description of it is non-negligence. This careful attention to all of our, t- our activities during the day. Not just the sitting and the walking, but all activities during the day. You don't have to be slow. You can be at a normal pace and just notice the body moving through space, what the mind is doing. You know, little thoughts of thinking go by, little periods of aversion or wanting to eat right away, things like that. Just noticing that. That's non-negligence, careful attention. It's also to the micro-moments of what goes on, seeing at that level when we're really, really still. The Buddha said in the Dhammapada, 
the foolish and the ignorant give themselves over to negligence, whereas the wise treasure mindfulness as a precious jewel. So when we're this way, it's really clean. You know, when just, you can walk from here to get your shoes on, and you know, you can just notice those moments, if, even if they're defilements, come and go. They're, they don't need to be adhered to in any way by identifying with them or by ruminating about them, just letting them fly by like a bird or like the wind. So we see that on an everyday level when someone has a strong quality of awareness about them, we, we notice they're a very aware person and there's a beauty about that kind of a person. It doesn't matter, you know, really what they look like on the outside, but they're a beautiful person. You know, you feel like they're really aware. They, they carry that awareness throughout their lives. There's a quality that one can participate in life's events and have this kind of participatory awareness and know what's happening during that time. They're not distracted, um, you know, by getting involved in in too much um, of what's going on outside. They're really knowing what's going on inside, but they're able to do what needs to be done on the outside, to take action in a way that's really, really effective because you're coming from a very deep, powerful place. This is participatory awareness, when it's the middle ground between being absorbed and indulging in what we're experiencing or, and identified with it. And uh, the, other, the other side of that is a blind denial or ignorance about what's going on. So if sadness or grief arises, it isn't denied or pushed away under a carpet of denial or depression or repression or spiritual bypassing where we just say, oh, it's just all impermanent, but we really don't know that deeply. We just kind of put a label, spiritual label on it because we can't face the difficulty inside. So we have now gone through faith and effort, energy, mindful awareness Now the fourth faculty is concentration. And we're doing this kind of concentration here that's in relation to vipassana practice. It's not the kind of concentration where we take and we focus on a single thing or a single subject like metta. Metta is more of a concentration practice. And maybe, you know, there are concentration practices where you stay on this casina or this ball of light or color and you just really focus on that. But we're not doing that kind of practice here where we're limiting our attention on a single object or a single subject like metta. But in vipassana practice, we're having momentary concentration. So that's really important difference there, distinction there. We're having this concentration on changing experiences, or you might call them changing objects. Seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting, all the five sense doors, and all the varied 
um, experiences that come through the mind door. Thinking and the various ways of thinking, the attitudes of mind, the hindrances, the factors of enlightenment. So in Vipassana meditation, is, it is meant to develop wisdom. Metta meditation, concentration meditation is meant to develop uh, concentration. Vipassana on changing, concentration on changing objects is meant to develop wisdom. That's a major distinction between the two. So we're developing wisdom here. The wisdom of really knowing the nature of reality. The truth of how things are. And this will, one of us will go more into the truth of the experience, experiential understanding of impermanence, the truth of experiential understanding of the unreliability of life to produce lasting happiness. This is the unsatisfactory nature. And uh, the not-self characteristic, the not-self characteristic nature of all conditioned things. So this is the wisdom aspect that Vipassana is bringing us to. Vipassana means seeing things as they really are. So it's kind of going underneath the conceptual knowledge and going into the experiential understanding of wisdom. So this is the result, the development, the uncovering, the recognition of true wisdom. And this is the fifth faculty of these five faculties. This deepening understanding that um, is really part of, part of reality, but we don't see it because of various conditions. And these five faculties are uh, helping us to develop the conditions to go more and more deeply into understanding this true reality that we also live with, but is hidden to us a lot. So more about that in, in the coming days. So this is the fifth of the five faculties. So in pairs, we need to have the balance between faith and wisdom. So this develops the capacity to have devotion to our practice, as in faith. You know, devotion to really understanding what is our highest value uh, of ourselves as human beings and really having faith in our potential to develop that through the teachings, through our teachers. And uh, that balances the wisdom factor, which is comprehension to really understand uh, the true nature of life experientially. And so not just be in blind faith, but to have the faith to walk the path ourselves so that this wisdom can be experienced in our hearts. And then we need to have this balance of energy and concentration. We need the active, gentle, persevering energy to do this practice with our, in, physically, in our bodies, in our minds, to uh, balance out this sense of seclusion of mind uh, so that we can have um, the hindrances not pummeling us so much and so we can have a sense of really feeling like we have this quietness so that we can, with the energy that we have moment to moment, really see through 
the illusion of permanence, solidity, the illusion of self. So all of the above make mindfulness more powerful and there's a deep sense of equanimity that develops through that. And this equanimity called also the doorway to the unconditioned, to Nibbana. So very, very important. So I'd like to end with um, this beautiful quote by one of our uh, nuns, Ayakema, from Germany, passed away some years ago. She said, Since all of us have these faculties within, there is every reason to cultivate them. One finds oneself a more harmonious and balanced person with less difficulties, capable of helping others. To develop these five faculties should be a primary object in one's life. The balancing of them needs to be seen as connecting the heart with the mind. So let's sit for a moment and just let the words and the concepts dissolve and have faith. So as Don Juan encouraged Carlos Casaneda, he said, it is up to each one of us to choose how to take this journey. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org dot org slash donate.